Amen. Thanks again to Aaron and team for leading us. Uh, before we come to the table, we just want to return to the, the very place in the Gospels that inspired the song that we just sang. This is Jesus' teachings in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This is where we hear in the Gospels that Jesus has good news about the kingdom of God. And then in taking us into that good news, Jesus speaks to us about the kinds of things that we go through when life is at its worst, which is why he gives blessings for those who have a poverty within them for the poor in spirit, which is why he gives blessings for those who are mourning and lamenting great loss, which is why he gives a blessing for the meek and for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's, it's like he is wooing us into our powerlessness and saying that in your worst experiences that you don't have to pretend or perform, that you can fully own your weakness and sense of loss, and that through the open-heartedness that is engendered by those experiences, the kingdom of God will find a home in you. And that the kingdom of God is so good and so generous and so available that it can overcome any deficit, any wound, and it can flow through those very places that have been broken open. And Jesus seems to think that people who live in an open-hearted relationship with that promise, people who let those broken places become the conduits of God's kingdom, that those are the kind of people who become so effective in the world against evil not because they're so great or strong, but because their lives have become conduits for the kingdom of God, that evil will have to come after them, which is the heart behind that last blessing that he gives for the persecuted. It's a way of Jesus saying that if you walk with me into this reality, you would become the kind of person that evil, though evil has limited resources, has to aim those resources at you because you are such a threat to its project in the world. And I don't know about you, but that does sound like good news to me. That sounds like hope to me. That like no deficit, no broken place of experience can defeat this possibility. And then Jesus goes on in these three chapters of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 to give us pictures of those possibilities. Like this is what a human life could actually look like. This is what a community could actually look like if people are taking these things seriously. And so this week, along with lots of other weeks between now and Lent next year, we are now just kind of pressing into those pictures. And today I want to move to the next one that we have in the text. So this is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, that's uh, an Aramaic term, is answerable to the court, but it means essentially what he says next. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. And then he says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Now, already we're back to one of those places in the Sermon on the Mount where it doesn't always feel like good news to me right away. Like, if he's equating the sort of heinous moral violation of murder with us when we harbor anger, this doesn't begin by feeling like good news to me, right? In fact, like, a lot of me wants to ask, like, Jesus, on what ground do you stand when you make this sort of comparison? Like, like how do you get to do that? Because you've really sort of tightened the screws on all of us by saying that even harboring anger is an offense in the same way that murder is, Right? Now, if you've heard us preach everyone an icon, which is one of our four community mantras, you've heard us say this before, but I think the way that Jesus gets there, the way that Jesus starts with murder and ends up condemning just the kind of everyday anger that we harbor toward one another is because Jesus remembers where the prohibition against murder comes from for his people. And this goes all the way back in the Hebrew text to like the very beginning of the story of the Bible. Uh, you all remember Noah and the ark and the flood, right? 
uh, the two by two animals and all that kind of stuff. Well, that story happens in Genesis 6 through 9. And at the end of that story, when God invites Noah and his family out of the ark, and they, they basically like reboot the whole creation story. If you read Genesis, it's very clear. It's a, sort of a recapitulation, like we're doing this again. And they come out of the ark, and God wants to sort of renew the story of creation in the world. Uh, he gives the people the first prohibition against murder that we read in the scriptures. So let me go back. And by the way, this is sort of a principle of interpretation. Sometimes you ask yourself, well, where's the first time this happens? And Jesus is talking about murder. Let's ask, where's the first prohibition against murder? It's in Genesis 9, where God speaks to them and says, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made humankind. So for Jesus and, and for the scriptures, the prohibition against murder isn't just some general, vague kind of moral stance. It's built on something. And the thing that it's built on is the idea that every human being is a bearer of the image of God. And so murder isn't just an offense against another human being. It's not just violence against another human being. It's an act of blasphemy against God who has put God's image in the victim of your violence, right? Well, if, if that's where the prohibition against murder comes from in these scriptures, then it might make sense that Jesus starts with the prohibition against murder and works it out, right? If the violence that we commit against one another is a problem because the people that we are committing the violence against are bearers of the image of God, then murder might not be the only problem in our relations, right? Like it might be that any act of disrespect or contempt or, 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 or disparagement, any way that we harbor energy against one another is itself a kind of blasphemy because the people that we are harboring these things against are bearers of the image of God. This is one of the reasons we preach everyone an icon, because it calls us out not just when we are with the people that we like the most, but especially when we are with the people that we have the hardest time remembering that they are bearers of the sacred image of God. And sometimes the people that you have the hardest time remembering that with are people who are like in other identity categories or in different lanes of experience. But sometimes the people we have the hardest time remembering that with are the people who have hurt us, who have done something to make us angry. Uh, you'll notice, by the way, how quick Jesus is to turn from talking about our life with God to talking about our life with one another. In fact, if you read the New Testament, or the whole Bible, if you read the thing over and over again, it's very clear that for God, like our life with God and our life with one another are so intimately woven that they might as well be the same thing. I mean, later Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, I'm not going to give you one. I'm going to give you two because they're connected. Love God and love one another. For Jesus, our life with God and our life with one another are so intimately bound up that he can't separate the two, right? Now, let's talk about the anger thing a little bit. Uh, it's interesting that we're sort of living in an age that feels like, uh, what do you call it, the renaissance of anger? In fact, like anger is sort of being asserted uh, for its legitimacy in a few spaces right now. Uh, a lot of psychologists will point out that repressed anger is really unhealthy. Like, like repressed anger is, is not good for you. In fact, repressed anger is often where depression comes from. That because we haven't found a healthy way to work out our anger, it turns against ourselves within. And so repressed anger is like really not a, a very good thing. And if you took Jesus' teachings to say like, we'll just repress that stuff and pretend it's not there, like, I'm not sure that's quite right, because I, I do think one check that we can put on our interpretation of the things that Jesus calls us to is, is whether they ultimately lead us to well-being or not. And I don't think you can have a faithful spirituality that's an emotionally unhealthy spirituality, because I think throughout the text, it's really clear that God cares about integration and wholeness. So, like, that's an interesting sort of troubling 
aspect of our interaction with this text. But not only do we have psychologists who are calling us to not repress anger, but to, to own it, but then you have um, a real sort of reclaiming of anger in spaces that are marked by social activism that, that are recognizing, I think, that, um, that the anger of people who have been oppressed is an essential component in our communal discourse, that if we are going to try to figure out how to build a better world, we'd better learn how to hear and understand the anger of people who've been repressed by the world that we live in right now. I mean, anger seems to be like a really powerful and potent response to injustice. And if that doesn't seem right to you, consider the fact that Jesus has no problem showing anger in the Gospels when he sees people being oppressed. So that's, that's interesting. We have Jesus saying, don't be angry, but we have Jesus flipping tables in the temple when he sees a system that uses the edifice of God to exploit people economically. So like, you gotta like put a couple of those caveats out there and ask yourself, what are you gonna do with them, right? And by the way, one of the things I hope you hear from me as we work through the Sermon on the Mount is it's not always immediately clear to me what we're supposed to do with all of this, but I don't think we should just ignore it. And I think like one aspect of growing up and growing in faith and growing with Jesus is to wrestle with these things, to like put all that on the table and say, so Jesus says, don't be angry. We're also learning that there's ways of repressing anger that's really unhealthy. And there's ways of hearing anger that's really critical for a society that's trying to grow more just. So like you put all of it on the table and you work on it together, like as a community, and we ask ourselves like, what would it mean? What do we do with this, right? I think that's a really holy and appropriate way of interacting with everything that Jesus is talking about. Now, all that being said, one thing that some psychologists will tell you is that anger can often be a secondary emotion. And here we get back to those blessings that ask us to not perform or pretend but to be very real about the things that we are carrying and the, the wounds that we are suffering. And I, perhaps one invitation in Jesus telling us to not carry anger around with us is to ask, is this anger a cover for something more vulnerable? Right, there, anger can be a way of putting armor on, can't it? And it can be a thing that we wrap around a feeling of fear or loss or shame and I do think one question we could ask ourselves if we find ourselves carrying anger around is like, is that a cover for something? Can it be traced back to a more vulnerable feeling or experience? And is it, frankly, like more comfortable to show up angry in the world than it is to show up vulnerable and say, I've been hurt by the things that have happened. And for you, maybe the context for that is like your closest relationships. Or maybe the context for that is like the workplace and people who have hurt you there. Like, I don't know where that lives for you, but you might invite it um, to take you further into what you're really feeling and carrying and to see if it can teach you something about the wounds that are with you right now. And again, this whole teaching begins with Jesus saying, hey, when you find a poverty within you or when you have lost something or when you were aching for things to be made right, you don't have to perform or pretend that those things aren't true of you because it's precisely those conditions that invite the kingdom of God to flow through you. And so maybe that anger is another invitation to go a little deeper and to do a little more work. Now, a brief story, and I promise this will go somewhere, but it won't seem that way at first. Uh, when I grew up, my family had this thing that we were a part of called Bethlehem Revisited, and our church put it on every year. And it was this very intense reenactment of the journey to Bethlehem to meet baby Jesus. And so it was like the big rallying cry of our church every year. And I think like thousands of people would come through this thing. And so, like, during the, the Christmas season, like, families would come, and we would put on this big thing and it involved, like, like, an opening skit, like, in a sanctuary. But then, like, we had all, all of us, like, in, 
like old Hebrew costumes, right? And we would pretend that we were a family that was about to make our journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem because we too had to partake in the census. And so then we would meet Joseph and Mary and Mary was pregnant when we meet Mary at the beginning of the journey and they're on their way to Nazareth. And then we go on our own journey and we meet like wise men and there's like angels and there's like a tax collector. And then we get into Bethlehem and there's this whole little scene with like a, a market in a village and like a lamb being roasted on a spit. And then we go find like room in the inn and like we gather up our family of travelers and we go in there and there's no room at the end, of course, but then we find out that a baby's been born in the end. So then we go into the most sacred scene at the end of this whole journey that took like an hour for these people to go through. And when we walk into this like sacred scene at the end of the journey, you go into this room and it's, it's very quiet and there's really beautiful music playing. And this like old sage elder at our church, Dick Seckerly, had this deep like old man voice and he had this really fine-tuned narration that he would offer about like seeking peace and finding Christ in the world. It was really beautiful. And so I'd be there, like I was like a junior your guide and I would lead families through it and my little Hebrew costume and my headpiece and all that stuff. And there's probably all kinds of cultural appropriation going on that I'm just now realizing as I talk to you is totally inappropriate. But at the time, <laughs> didn't dawn on us. But anyway, there would be this scene there at the end. It was very quiet and very sacred, except for one year when one of the live animals that we had in the manger scene, I think it was a goat, was in heat. Now, I don't know about you, but I did not grow up close to agriculture and animals, and so it was news to me, because I, like, I didn't know what, like, what, I just read this online. Let me show you what I learned about a doe and heat. This is a doe goat. A doe and heat may vocalize more than normal. Some may literally scream while in heat. If no buck or male goat is present when a doe comes into heat, she may make the same moaning and blubbering sounds as a buck in rut. So there was a year at Bethlehem Revisited where in the most sacred scene, where we were inviting everybody to quietly pray and reflect on baby Jesus, there is a screaming, moaning, blubbering goat interrupting the scene. Why do I tell you that? Because of what Jesus says in this teaching. I don't know if you remember, but he said, if you find yourself at, like, at the altar to make your sacrifice, and you realize that there is an unreconciled conflict in your life. I want you to leave the animal there and go be reconciled. Well, he's talking to people who might travel three days by foot with an animal like a goat to make a sacrifice. And the picture that he puts in front of them is that you would take a goat and leave it in the most sacred space, and it might be in rut or heat for all we know, and like leave it there because Jesus would rather have a wild animal running loose in the temple than wild anger running loose in our hearts. Like that's the image he actually gives us, that, that sacred spaces like the temple with like wild animals running around are less violated than the sacred space between us and relationship is violated by unreconciled anger and conflict between us. And so he says, I would rather you leave that animal there let it run wild in the temple. Who knows what will happen in that sacred space, but the thing I really want you to tend to is the sacred space that exists between you and others in relationship. And this is how serious Jesus takes this. In fact, the next time you find yourself bumping into some sense of an unreconciled conflict, maybe the image that should come to mind for you is that the space either within you or between you and them is a little bit like a temple with an, a wild animal running around, screaming, or kicking or breaking things. Like imagine the, the blasphemy of that, the violation of that. That's the image Jesus has for unreconciled relationships. And I think it, like, it calls us to take this stuff really seriously. Um, this thing that Jesus says uh, before all of this is the other place I wanna turn before we come to the table. Because I kinda skipped a passage in the Sermon on the Mount. 
I wanted us to like sit with one of these pictures of, of, of the life with God that Jesus gives us and then go back to a frame that he puts in front of it. Uh, by the way, what we just looked at, like you have said, don't murder, but I tell you, don't be angry. This is what's known as an antithesis in um, Matthew 5. And so by antithesis, we just mean he's like, I've told, you've heard this, but I'm going to give you like a different view. So in this text, he gives you not just the antithesis around anger, but he gives you others like around divorce. And um, Jesus frames all of that with this really hard thing that he says in Matthew 5, 17. Let me put it on the screen. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Commentators will tell you this is one of the hardest like sayings in the New Testament. It's something that they've often wrestled with. At one level, when he speaks of a righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees, it's kind of confusing because the Pharisees are known for doing everything right. It's kind of like saying, like, you need to be better than the pitcher that pitched a perfect game. You would ask, like, what would that even mean, right? Until you start listening to these antitheses, these teachings that he gives us, and whether it's anger or other areas, what you hear him saying is, I actually want you to go deeper. I want you to do the work. I want you to root out the contempt that exists between you and other people, not just the sort of actions of violence that exist between you and other people. And believe it or not, again, this is where I actually think this whole teaching is good news. I think a lot of us have been caught between what you might call literalism and liberalism. And I don't mean liberalism like in a political way right now. I just mean like, like a kind of literalism that has this rigid and white-knuckled grip on the rules that we inherit from the text. And then upon discovering that that rigid, white-knuckled grip on the rules from the text doesn't work, upon discovering that it doesn't give any life, then a lot of us are tempted to kind of move the other way and just sort of like throw the whole thing off and just try to find some kind of freedom from these paths and, and principles and possibilities. But I think Jesus is inviting us to something different than either literalism or liberalism. I think he's inviting us to like a, a true liberation, which isn't to like just throw off like any sense that our lives have consequence, not to throw off any sense that we need to enroll ourselves in the school of Jesus, but rather to trust that if we do it, we will be invited to do such deep work that something so transformative can be happening in us and between us that we'll find a kind of freedom to live the good life that Jesus is describing in the Sermon on the Mount. And like that's the, that's the good news of this. Again, like I said, I think Jesus actually believes in the possibilities of being human. And he believes that those possibilities are not attained by moral perfection or by climbing a high mountain or by proving yourself or by performing. He seems to think that the greatest possibilities of being human come to us when we open our hearts. When we let that poverty within us or the brokenness around us make us vulnerable. And we don't run from that vulnerability, but we rather embrace it, believing that the kingdom of God is so good and so generous and so available that it could make us the kind of people who reconcile, the kind of people who don't leave wild animals running loose in the sanctuary of our lives and our relationships, that bring a little more order and peace and harmony, even if it's just like in 
those friendships and romantic partnerships and like the, the, the very like real relational spaces that shape our every day. Um, there's a literalism that is not going to give you any life. And the Pharisees nailed it. And Jesus doesn't look at them and see anything worth imitating. There's what you might call liberalism. And again, I don't mean that politically. I just mean like a throw it all off because the rules weren't working. And that just leaves us lost, I think. And then there's the life that suggests that Jesus is speaking us about the possibilities of being human and inviting us into them. And we want to be students of that. Um, and so as is often the case for us, I mean, we did want to hear the word, but we also want to practice a little bit and pray a little bit and reflect a little bit before we come to the table. Uh, it would be, dare I say, it would be a little problematic if we talked about, like, before you come to the altar, deal with some stuff. And then we came to the table, which is a kind of altar, and didn't deal with some stuff. Like, that just, like, that would lack integrity at the basic level in our gathering here. And so uh, Aaron has really graciously and pastorally worked on a way of helping us reflect a little bit about how we could take very seriously what Jesus is calling us to before we come to the table. And so Aaron's going to lead us further now. So this is a, a very um, simple, <clears throat> but I hope um, deeply helpful um, guided meditation. It is, it's going to be about eight minutes, and it's four different opportunities to pray and to hold our reality in God's presence. And so uh, my spiritual director loves to say, when you pray, say to God with your body what you're saying with your heart, with your mind. So I'd love to begin in our bodies. Would you place both feet on the floor, please? If you're able, would you sit up just a little bit in your chair? If it's helpful to hold your hands in a certain way, feel free to do that. Be conscious of your hands. Are they open? Maybe you want to place them over your heart. Maybe you want to place them on your lap. Say to God with your body, God, I'm open. I'm here. I'm listening. Conscious of your breath. Notice the air filling your lungs. And then returning to the world. Every breath is a gift. Thank God for that gift, the gift of life. And as we begin, I wonder if in the last 15 minutes or so, as Jason was inviting us into this text on anger and being unreconciled, did a specific face come to mind? Who is it? What's their name? And if it's not too uncomfortable, let their face be in your mind in this moment. Not with judgment, but just to notice their face.
Holy Spirit, would you guide us to focus on the person or the relationship, the anger that you want us to focus on this morning? So I want to guide us in four simple prayers with this person's face in mind. First, let's take one minute to tell God about this person and specifically about the anger we feel. You don't have to use religious language. God knows. God knows. But take one minute silently to pour out why you feel the way you feel about this person, trusting that God can handle it. God can take it. Holy Spirit, would you receive these tender prayers? Let's continue. Secondly, can we take one minute in a practice of empathy to tell God what we imagine this other person might say about us? If this person with whom we are so angry and have this broken relationship, if they were praying about us, what might they say? This isn't a prayer of shame or blame, but empathy. So let's take one minute and tell God what we imagine they might say about us. Holy Spirit, please guide us as we pray.
Let's continue. Third, let's take one minute to pray a prayer of blessing for this person, this person that God so dearly loves. And not a prayer that God would change them or smite them or something like that, a prayer that God would bless them, would bless their family, would keep them healthy in these times, that they would have eyes to see how much God really does love them. Would, can we take this one minute to pray the very uncomfortable prayer that Jesus gave us to pray and bless this person by name? Holy Spirit, receive our prayers for this sister or this brother. And then finally, let's pray a prayer for wisdom. Can we take one minute to ask God to show us one step that we can take this week to move through the anger toward this person and begin the reconciliation? What is one concrete step we can take maybe this afternoon, this Tuesday morning, this week, ask God to show you one step and then let's just try to listen how God might lead us. Holy Spirit, we hold this question before you and we ask that you would guide us by your heavenly wisdom. Please speak. Your servants are listening. Most gracious God, thank you for hearing and receiving our prayers. 
Thank you for loving not just us, but them. Thank you for loving not just them, but us. And thank you for the work of reconciliation that you have been, are, and will continue to do in us and in this world. And thank you for this sacrament that we are about to practice now, the ultimate sacrament of you putting the world back together, Holy Communion. Would you open us to your very real presence as we practice this together? We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you stand, friends, as we prepare to approach the table? And we begin by praying this ancient prayer together. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. We come to the table because we are perpetually invited altogether. We come to the table celebrating that God comes near to us. We come to the table acknowledging our participation with God and with others. We come to the table remembering and proclaiming God's story centered on Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We come to the table anticipating God's healing in our own lives and of the whole world. Oh God, your steadfast love has been ours for generations. Through Christ, you brought us out of the abyss of death and into the light of eternal love. With joy and thanksgiving, we proclaim your salvation, remembering Christ's death and resurrection until he comes again. As we break bread and share the cup together, may Christ be present with us. And may the Spirit bind us together as Christ's body in the world. Amen. You know that part in the praying when Aaron invited us to bless the person that we're mad at? Was anybody else like, great, now I, now I have somebody else I'm mad at, and his name is Aaron? <laughs> I might have cursed at you a little bit. Um, which is a strange way of saying thank you to Aaron again for uh, coming all the way out from New York to be with us today. We really appreciate it. My next thought was, like, I, I actually do believe that Jesus is both willing and able to lead us to become the kinds of people who maybe not today, but one day could find that blessing to be authentic, right? That we could um, move into places of conflict and pain and that from those places could come real healing and reconciliation. And so there's the hope again, not that we're necessarily there today, but that we could continue to grow and heal in that direction if we take Jesus as seriously as we intend to around here. And so whatever that experience was like for you, I hope that you feel the hope within it and the promise that we can keep walking in that direction together. Uh, if you want to join us to talk about the building, uh, head upstairs right after this gathering. Matt Grable, our executive pastor, would love to hear from you. That being said, how about a benediction? May you remember that the life of God is yours. 
precisely in the places where you feel most vulnerable and broken and cracked open. May you trust that this life that God gives is so good and generous and available that it can overcome any deficit of experience. And as God gives God's life to you, may you find yourself growing in the path of healing and reconciliation. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.